awesome team here at Grace. I'm glad to fill in for Jim when he's away and he's gone celebrating the 4th of July with his family. And so I get to be here with you guys. We're going to wrap up this series today um, um, through, East, uh, through the book of Esther. And I think I shared this before, but I was thinking about it this week as we were getting together with Tara's parents to celebrate the 4th of July. You know, I was thinking about, uh, uh, about holidays and my favorite holiday to celebrate, I don't know what yours is, it'd be interesting to take a little survey here, see everybody's favorite holidays are to celebrate. Mine is to celebrate the uh, uh, Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. I don't know how you guys feel, but that's my favorite one of all. I, lo- I mean, I like celebrating other holidays, but I love Thanksgiving because it starts off the holiday season. I love that about it. Um, I love that there's plenty, you know, of football to watch that day. Uh, not lying, that's definitely a big reason. And uh, in fact, the Eagles get to play this particular Thanksgiving coming up, and I'm really excited about that. Um, and so I already got that kind of circled in the calendar. Don't call me, phone's off, um, you know, kind of thing. And, um, you know, I, I love getting together with family and food. And, I mean, who doesn't love giant, scary, you know, balloons uh, like Godzilla coming down your street? I mean, who doesn't like that? So I love that part about Thanksgiving, too. And so it's a great day. And as I was kind of getting ready for this message today, I was thinking about Thanksgiving, and I was thinking about the very first Thanksgiving you know, lots of historians kind of debate when Thanksgiving started and when it got its official start because it kind of started and stopped and started and stopped several times throughout our nation's history. But when we think of Thanksgiving, the traditional one, it happened in 1621. That spring until that fall when they celebrated, the pilgrims had planted and fished and had hunted uh, and they learned from uh, Squanto and the other Indians that had helped them how to do those things and how to survive in the land. And that fall, they had reaped and they had harvested enough food to have provisions for that winter. And so when Governor Bradford said, hey, let's celebrate a Thanksgiving holiday to thank God for coming through for us and providing for us this winter, the pilgrims were really, really excited about that. They like, this is very, very welcomed. And the reason it was welcomed was because of what had taken place over that year leading up to that being able to happen. Because it was a year earlier when they had left England and they came to, you know, the new world. They spent over 60 days on the boat, 66 days from there to get here. And then even when they got here, they landed in what we call Cape Cod. And they got there, they couldn't dock then because they had to kind of search for a place where they could settle. And it took them over a month to find a place to find Plymouth um, where they could actually settle. So their, their parties, their scouting parties kind of went out and would find, no, that's not going to work, or this isn't going to work. And it took them over a month so they could finally get there. Could you imagine going on vacation with your kids, okay? And there's the whole time saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Then you get there and you say, just sit here in the car for a month. I mean, could you imagine how bad that would be? And so that's what they did. They got there, but no, we're not here for another month. And so then they get there and uh, it's the middle of December, by the time they actually get to Plymouth, the middle of December. And so, you know, I mean, they're busy. It's, it's the holidays. They got to get gifts. They got to get trees up. I mean, they had a lot to do in a short time until Christmas. December 16th was when they docked. And so they start building, you know, their first homes and that kind of thing. And uh, they, they had nothing, basically, that first winter. And so even after they get to, you know, Plymouth, to here in the New World, they still, that winter, have to live on the Mayflower. They had to live on the boat. And could you imagine living on a lake here in Indiana all winter long? And that's what they had to do in New England. And I, I know northern Indiana has cold winters. We had a very cold winter this past one. I remember it well. But you know what? New England is like even colder. And they had to live on their boat. No heat, you know, no electricity, very damp on the water. And so you guys know the story of the 103 
pilgrims who came to America, who got on that boat, by the end of that first winter, there were only 55 left. 55. And so what, you know, they had lost husbands and wives and children who had come together to say, let's start this new colony. Let's, let's get a new adventure together. Let's go try something. And then they were pursuing religious freedom as well, and where they could worship God the way they felt they should. And, and then in that very first winter, like half were gone. And so they were probably really discouraged. And so that spring then, when they met those Native Americans who started to teach them how to take care of the land, by the fall, when they had the provisions that they needed for winter, they really did have a lot to be thankful for. And so the pilgrims established Thanksgiving because they stumbled onto a principle, onto a truth that God has placed into our world. And this is it. The greatest opportunities for celebration come out of the darkest circumstances of our lives. Do you know that's true? The greatest opportunity for celebration comes out of the darkest circumstances of our lives. That's true in the story of the pilgrims. The reason they were able to celebrate so much was because of where they had come from, what had happened over that prior year. And in our story that we're going to look at today in Esther, we can't forget what has happened because now we're at the end of the story and we're going to see the day they're going to celebrate. But all throughout the first eight chapters of the story, they went through some really dark times to get to where they were. But out of the Great, out of the darkest circumstances of our lives come the greatest celebrations. Isn't that true in every area of life? You even think about, you think about birth, you know, how hard that is, how difficult that process is. But this child gives you so much, you know, gives you a mother so much joy. And so she goes through it. Out of the darkest circumstances come the greatest joy. You think about birth, you think about death. It's the same thing, the death of a saint. You know, to, to face death and the unknown and the fear that's into that, but then to wake up in the presence of God. You see, the greatest celebration comes out of the darkest circumstances of our lives. It's true all over the place. And so we're going to look at that today to see how that happens in Esther. So turn, take your Bibles and turn to Esther chapter um, 9, if you would. If you need a Bible, we have ushers that will give you one. Just put your hand up in the air. They, they'll bring one to you. Keep it up till they get to you. They will they'll find you eventually. All right, they're like the IRS. Esther, Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9, and uh, we're going to read the first four verses together. Okay, the first four verses. Esther 9, 1 to 4. Let me kind of recap for those who have uh, been away or have missed a couple of uh, these stories here in Esther. Um, Up until, you know, the first eight chapters, here's what's happening. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jews, are not living in their land. They have been taken captive Uh, by the nation of Persia, by King Xerxes, and they have been removed, taken away from their homeland and removed, and they're living now in this other place. And while they're there, they're trying to kind of blend in and and live life the best they can. And the prime minister of the land, Haman, hates them and has declared that he is going to kill every single Jew, right? We've heard that story before. And uh, he's, that's what he's going to do. And so he decides on a particular day when that's going to happen. I mean, he kind of hangs it out there in front of them and says, you may be safe today, but this is coming. This day is coming. And, and so he kind of hangs it out there, and that's what they're facing. And in fact, he hangs a gallow you know, on his own property to hang his arch enemy, or who he thinks is arch enemy, is Mordecai, this Jewish man who serves in the court of the king. And um, things are looking really bleak. 
Times are bad, but we saw last week how God then comes through and reverses everything in their favor. Haman is now forced to honor Mordecai. Then the king actually has Haman killed on that same place where Mordecai was supposed to be killed. And then Mordecai is made prime minister where Haman had served. And then the king, because he can't undo the first decree that he had sent out, that all the Jews were going to be killed on that particular day, he can't, he can't take that back. Um, so he issues a second decree that says on that day, the Jewish people will be allowed to defend themselves. And so that's where he left off last week in the story. Okay, so let's turn to Esther chapter 9. We're going to pick it up there. If you want to stand up, we're going to read together. Esther 9, 1 to 4. I'd like you to follow along uh, with, uh, with me here. Ready, read. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict of the commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. Thanks, you can have a seat. So we picked it up here in the beginning of Esther chapter 9. I want to kind of go through and sort of unpack this chapter for us as the Jews uh, begin to turn the tables, as the scripture said. And I'd like you in your Bible to highlight a word, underline it, circle it, start, whatever, but the word in verse 1, chapter 9, the word but. For those of you in um, junior high still, that's B-U-T right there. Okay. And I want you to underline because it says, on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned. And the reason I want to bring attention to that is because that, that word, that phrase, that idea of but God coming through on someone's behalf is all throughout Scripture. When God enters the scene, when God sort of comes out of heaven and changes the circumstances of his people in their favor, it is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing, but God. Their enemies had a plan for that particular day, it says, but God had another purpose. He had another purpose for that particular day. And so things may seem like they're going one way, but then God turns it around. This date was supposed to be the end of the Jews. It was supposed to be their annihilation, their apocalypse. And God says, no, I'm going to intervene on their behalf, but God. And so God, there are, time, there are times in our lives where God comes in and directly intervenes in a circumstance that is going one direction and he turns it around in our favor. But God, and that's a powerful thing. Pick it up in verse two. The Jews assembled in their cities. That means that they, they, they uh, assembled themselves to fight. They kind of organized themselves. They got ready to fight, to do what they could to defend themselves in the cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And see, the same thing happens in verse 3. So all the nobles, provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators, they helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai had seized them. 
So God puts all these other people, all these other nations now are scared of them. And which is amazing because they had no military strategy. They had no army. They had no commanders to direct them. They had none of that. They were just sort of assembling themselves to defend themselves. Like you and I would do, you know, um, to just sort of get ready. If somebody was coming after us, we would kind of make the best of what we can do to, to protect ourselves and our families. They assembled themselves. And so God then comes in and changes the hearts of all the people around them that are now fearful of them. God comes in and intervenes. And there's something there where they had done their part. I mean, they, Esther and Mordecai stood up for the Jews and uh, talked to the king on their behalf. And so they did their part. And then the Jews, they assembled themselves. They did their part. But then God comes into the scene and he does his part. God comes onto the scene and he does what only he can do. Only God can change the heart of people. And that's what he does. He changes their hearts. And so now everyone is fearful of the Jews. Verse 5, it says, The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killed them, destroyed them, and they, they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the city of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And they also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Spatha and the rest of those names. The sons of Haman, they were the sons of Haman, Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. You know, it's interesting. I, I didn't say their names. I can't pronounce them very well. That's why we have our children named, you know, Ellie and Ethan, things like that. <clears throat> but it's interesting that the text, because the, every word of this book is inspired, and there's limited space, you know, within the inspired text of Scripture. And so it's interesting that the author would include every single name of the ten sons of Haman. You remember who Haman was? He was the enemy. And I think the reason that they take the space up to include all 10 of their names is probably because they want to show the power of God over Haman. Take a look back at Esther 5.11, where Haman is boasting about what he's done, right? About what, what he has. Chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Calling together his friends and Zeresh's wife, Haman boasted to them about his wealth, about his many what? sons, and about all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and the officials. And so Haman was someone who had thought he didn't need God, that he was sort of his own God. And that is a scary place to be. Where Mordecai and Esther did what they could do. They didn't just sit back. I mean, they did what they could do, but then they trusted God to do what he could do. Haman didn't think he needed God at all. He just did what he could do, and that was enough. And so God sort of goes out of his way to show uh, Haman that he is more powerful than he is. And it's interesting then to see what happens next as uh, the king is sort of excited about this you know, turn of events, and now the, now the Jews are fighting for themselves and defending themselves. It's almost like some sort of contest. It says in verse 11, the number of those who were killed in the citadel of Susa were reported to the king. It was like he wanted to keep track of it. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and, and, and the 10 sons of Haman. Uh, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Like, like, here's the score here. Like, what's the score over here? It's like he's following the World Cup, right? He's on Persian ESPN. And, and he's kind of saying, here's what's happening here in, in, in the city of Susa. What's happening in this? There are 127 different provinces, and they're getting the results kind of tallied in and sent in. And he's wondering, you know, what's happening everywhere. 
And it's, you know, it's cool to see how God comes through on behalf of his people. Verse 16 tells us that there were 75,000 of their enemies that were just killed that day. 75,000 by a, a group of people that were simply defending themselves. That had, again, no military strategy or training or expertise or anything like that. Simply a God who wanted to rescue his people. So that was a very different day than what had been expected only a, a few months or even a few weeks earlier. And so those following days then turn into celebration. You see, the greatest opportunity for celebration comes out of the darkest circumstances of our lives. In verse 20, Mordecai records these events. It says he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning was turned into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe these days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So he establishes these days to say, okay, these days that were supposed to be days of mourning. Remember, on the 13th day, they were supposed to just be annihilated. The Jews were going to be wiped out. And so a day of great mourning would be next, right? The 14th and the 15th would just be horrible days in this community. I mean, funerals everywhere. Imagine that. Just horrible uh, uh, days there for the Jewish people. And instead, now they're going to celebrate these days every single year. They're going to remember how God came through for them. That's why memorials are important and holidays are important. They are teaching times for our next generation where we talk about what God has done. When we tell the stories about how God came through, important times in our family's history and even in other holidays like our nation's history. So we talk about those things on those holidays for instance, a few weeks ago when it was the 70-year anniversary of uh, D-Day, the, the invasion in Normandy, I, I got our kids together in terror, we got, and we watched this, this, this documentary about it because I wanted them to understand our history and my two grandfathers who were a part of that. I want them to understand what it took for our nation to be what our nation is. And so we use these memorials, we use these holidays as teaching times for our kids. And so the traditions that we keep on holidays, they are to be... Uh, teachable things that we do. So the traditions, the meals we eat, the gifts we give, all that stuff that uh, Mordecai was saying, those are all to be for teaching to the next generation who did not live through the event, and we don't want them to forget what God did or what happened at that event, and so we're going to remind them of that. That was Mordecai and Esther's uh, point in having this new feast, this new celebration of Purim. And so as we wrap up this incredible uh, story here, as we wrap this up, uh, I, I want uh, us to walk away with a few things that I don't want us to miss here out of the story of Esther. And so just kind of three truths that are sort of throughout the pages here, the, the narrative of Esther that I don't want us to miss. And here's the first one, is that as Christians, we do what we can do, and then we let God do what only he can do. That's sort of a balance that we have to live with in our lives. You do what you can do, and then you let God do what only he can do. And we live sort of within that tension as believers. See, Esther and Mordecai, they took some incredible risks. That's actually how Mordecai is remembered. You look at the very last verse 
of this entire book of Esther, verse 3 of chapter 10, says Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. He's remembered for taking a risk, for doing what he did to speak up on behalf of his people. That's what Esther did as well. When there was something that was happening, they didn't sit by and just watch it. It's kind of like the Matthew West song that's so popular right now, right? Where he says, God, you got to do something. And what does God say in the song? I created you. That's why you're here. You do something. And so as believers, we are to do something. I think that Christians sometimes play the I'm just going to trust God card a little too fast. A little too fast. Without doing their part to clear up a situation or to do their best to work in a situation. See, God wants us to do what we can do. And so as we are trusting God to provide for, the, for our future, we look for that next opportunity. We look for it. We're active. And as we are waiting for God to mend hearts, we do our part to fix the conflict that we're involved in. Only God can change our heart, but we, we're active in doing our part to fix it, to solve it. And we obey God with the money that we do have as we faithfully wait for him to provide for our needs. And so we do what we can do as we wait for God to do what only he can do. Because that point does come. There comes a point in our various situations and our circumstances where we can honestly say, hey, I've done all that I can do. There's nothing else that I can do in this situation. There's nothing else that I can do to fix this or to make this better. I've done what I can do. And now, God, this is sort of up to you. Because there does come a time. And, and so, like I said, that I think a lot of Christians sort of play that I'm just going to trust God. I don't have to do anything here. I'm just going to trust God to take care of this. I think there's a lot of Christians that sort of play that card too much. And I think there's equally the amount of Christians who act as I can just do everything without God. I don't really need God to intervene on my behalf. I'm sort of fine without him. He needs to help the really needy Christians. I'm sort of not as needy as the rest of them. And, and, and I'm not sure, you know, why we sort of think that. But over time, we begin to believe that we don't need God as much as we used to. And you see, Esther, I love this picture of this principle. Turn to Esther 4. It's back a, a, a page. Esther 4, verse 16. She's going to go into the king. And here's what she says to Mordecai. Esther 4.16, she says, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants, we're going to do the same thing. And when this is done, I will go before the king. And you remember that she wasn't supposed to do that. She could lose her life. And so she says, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I'll go and I'll stand up for my people. I'll go say something to the king. I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to go talk to him. But I can't control his heart. If he kills me, that's up to him. So if I perish, I perish. That's what she says, but I'll do my part, but God, he then has to come through and save me or rescue me. And that's the picture of a believer. We do what we can do, but then we say, God, you have to come through. You have to come through. When was the last time that you did something where if God didn't come through for you, you were gonna be in trouble? Sometimes we live in these very simple, neat little boxes that we call our lives where we think we're in control of everything. And when was the last time you took a step of faith where if God did not come through, it wasn't going to work out? That's where Esther was living. She said, I'll do what I can do, but then I got to trust God. And if I perish, I perish. And that's the picture that we're looking for. 
And, and so it, it doesn't matter how long we've been following Christ. I've been a follower of Jesus for 20 years. You know that I desperately need him as much today as I did the very first day I called out to him. Do you know that? And you desperately need the grace of God in your life just as much as you did 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 70 years ago, or maybe just a week ago. You desperately need God's grace every day in your life. If God lets go of our world, it's out of control. And so I desperately need God every single day. It doesn't matter how much maturity I think I have. It doesn't matter how wise I think I am. I think I can figure this out on my own. I got the resources. I got the experience. I can take care of this. Listen, no, you can't. No, I can't. We all face times in our lives where we say, God, I can't do any more. I've done what I can do, but now you need to come through. God, I'm falling on your grace, on your mercy. You know, as I was doing some uh, research this week, thinking about this message, I thought about lifeguards. Do you know that lifeguards in the United States rescue 100,000 people every year out of the water, every summer, 100,000. You guys have seen these before. You probably watched Baywatch when you were a kid like I did, fess up. And, uh, and uh, you know, Pastor Jeremy, he was a lifeguard, I think. He grew up in Florida, and he was a good swimmer. He's probably a lifeguard. you imagine getting saved by Pastor Jeremy? You know, he'd be like, I'm here to rescue you. And, and I'm going to play you a song, too, you know. I, I, in fact, I got my guitar. He, he didn't have one of these. He just had a guitar. That was his flotation device. He would have his guitar strapped around his back, and he'd go rescue people out in, in, the, in the beaches of Florida. Well, you know that lifeguards rescue 100,000 people every summer. And you know what's interesting? What I found out this week as I was doing research, because I didn't know this before, that they, they rescue children and adults. Did you know that? Because it's really interesting, as I was kind of studying the health of this and how our bodies work, as children grow older and turn into adults, they still don't grow gills where they can breathe underwater. I'm serious. And, and, so, and so even as they become adults, do you know that they, if they're submerged, a lifeguard will actually go into the water and rescue them, just as often as they'll go into the water to rescue children. That's a silly illustration, I know. But you know, do you know what? It's true. Because lifeguards have a responsibility to rescue an adult just as much as a child. Uh, an adult needs a lifeguard to rescue them. And do you know what? As we mature in our faith and grow old in our faith, our need for a savior, for a rescuer, for a lifeguard, it never, ever diminishes. Do you know that? I desperately need Christ every day. I desperately need his grace in my life today the same amount that I needed it 20 years ago. I may be a little older. I may be a little mature in my faith. But you know what? I need a lifeguard. And so do you. And so I'm going to hit a time in my life where I'm going to do what I can do. And I've probably matured where I can do a little more than I used to be able to do. But you know what? I still need God to come into my life and do what only he can do. I need him to rescue me. And so do you. And so we got to live with that balance. And I just think that truth just comes out of these pages here in the story of Esther. And I wanted to point it out to you. Be sure to do what you can do and then let God do what only he can do. Here's the second principle that I don't want you to miss out of this story. Number two, there is always hope. There's always hope. You read this text and and. You just think the situation for the Jews is hopeless. The prime minister wants to destroy all of them. You, you, you look at their state, they are hopeless. Take a look. Turn back to Esther 3. Look at verse 13. 
Esther 3.13. It says, Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all of the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And do you know how these people responded, these, these Jewish people, when they heard this, these moms and these dads, these grandparents, they responded the same way that you and I would. Look down just a few verses of verse 3 of chapter 4. It says, In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay down in sackcloth and in ashes. They reacted the way that you and I would react if we all of a sudden got this death sentence over top of our entire family. They mourned. They had no hope. Have you ever looked into the face of a person who has no hope? It's gut-wrenching. Have you ever been that person who literally felt like you have no hope? that your situation is hopeless. There's no way that you're going to get out of this. There's no way that this is going to work out. That's the people of God in chapter three and chapter four of Esther. But what I love is that they're the same people in chapter nine who now have these days of feasting and celebration. And why was that? Because of God. Because God came through. Remember those words, but God. God changed the circumstances. God changed the reality. There is reality of life alone, and then there is the reality of living life with God. And I want to tell you, as a person of God, you always have hope. Always. Your situation is not hopeless. Your marriage is not hopeless. Your work situation is not hopeless. Your health is not hopeless. You are not without hope. You always have hope. Always. Hang on to that. I love our children that are over in Asia. Some of you guys know six years ago when, when God put it on our hearts as a church to, to rescue these orphans, these boys and girls who literally were living in the jungles or on the streets. And I, and I see their pictures and I look back and I see those very first pictures that we got of them six years ago. Looks of despair on their face. I mean, they had no hope. They, they, they had no future. They had no, no, no one looking out for them. No one could, that could do anything on their behalf. Nothing. And then you begin to see God do something. The way that he came through for these people in the book of Esther. The way he comes through for our orphans. The way he comes through for us. I mean, think back to the story of Esther. What God did was unimaginable. He put an orphan girl on the throne. She was a queen. He took the, the Jew, Mordecai, who was hated and supposed to be killed, now becomes the prime minister. And they, who were supposed to be slaughtered, the, the end of their uh, race now becomes a day of feasting because they've killed over 75,000 of their enemies. I mean, that, on, on Mordecai's best day of daydreaming, he could have never thought that could all happen. But it did because God comes through on behalf of his people. God came through on behalf of them. He comes through on behalf of us. I love now to picture uh, our kids who are in Asia, who six, year, six years ago had no hope. And, and I asked for one of the pictures. I didn't go on this last team. I, I've gone a couple years ago. But you take a look at their faces now, and here are two of the boys. Here's a boy and a girl, two of our kids from Thailand. 
and you see that they now have hope. That's the biggest difference between then and now, six years later. And you look at their countenance, you look at their face, and they, are, they have hope. And I wish that I could kind of get into their minds and, 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 and sort of even dialogue with them better than I can. And, but I wish that they could somehow express what transpired in their hearts. I mean, think about it. Six years ago, literally some of the older kids can probably remember it better than the younger ones. Some of the ones that are 18, 19, 20, they, they were old enough to know life was not good for them. I mean, they're literally, they have no one taking care of them. And, and then somebody comes and says, hey, we have a home for you. I, I have a home? I don't have to live on the streets. What do you mean? You're going to go to school. I'm going to go to school? I can, I, 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 and, and there's some people over in America, in the state of Indiana, which I know you've never heard of, they make RVs, which I know you've never seen one, and, and they believe God wants you to rescue them. I mean, could you get, get into their minds and try to picture? They had no imagination that that could ever happen to them. And now when you look at their faces, you, you see hope. See, that's what God does. You are never without hope. And when I see their faces, that, that reminds me of that. I'm never without hope. You talk about a group of kids that were hopeless and now have so much hope. All the ones that are going on to the university, all the ones that now have a relationship with Jesus. You, you Picture in their minds, there's a God who cares about me I'm going to go to heaven one day? Could you imagine? That's hope. See, you're never without hope. Your situation may seem impossible, but I'm telling you it's not. Because God can do things that are impossible. You can't even imagine what God might do in your life. You never ever live without hope if you're a believer in Christ. You always have hope. And so that's why we never walk out in the story halfway through. And so we never just start reading Esther 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 and stop. We have to keep reading the end of the story to see what God's going to do. And listen, your story isn't done. Maybe you're in chapter 4 or 5 or 6 or whatever. I'm telling you, those chapters of 7, 8, and 9 are coming. You have hope. You never have. You never don't have hope. See, the greatest opportunities for celebration come out of the darkest circumstances of our lives. The greatest opportunity for celebration will come out of the darkest circumstance of your life. And so if you're in that dark circumstance right now, you just remember that great celebration that is to come. And here's the third thing that we need to see. We can't walk away from this text, from these scriptures, without saying this. Number three, God's people should celebrate. God's people should celebrate. I love the ending of this book. They had been through an overwhelming trial. They had been through the darkest days of their lives, literally. And now God had come through. And they were going to celebrate. And, and Christians, we should celebrate a lot because God comes through on our behalf. And, uh, but here's what I've sort of noticed. You know, I've been a follower of Jesus now, like I said, for about 20 years. And here's what I've noticed about Christians. Most Christians know how to handle pain and suffering a lot better than they know how to handle pleasure and happiness. Like we think it's sort of spiritual to be sad, to be somber, to walk through difficult circumstances. And that makes us godly. And there is something about walking through that. Christ walked through suffering and, and it says that we, are, we want to join him in that. But Christ was someone who knew how to enjoy life. And he celebrated. And to the point that he was 
he was called a partier by the religious establishment. And he was labeled sort of too happy. Listen, as followers of Jesus, we should know how to celebrate. It's, it's as if we prefer to be mad about things that are going on in our world. Sometimes Christians can be so serious and just take all the fun out of life. And I'm not sure that that's what God desires for us. I think there's a lot of good things happening in our world. There's a lot of tough things, and we have some dark days ahead of us, no doubt. But you know what? We have some really good stuff going on too. God is at work. He's alive. His church is growing. He says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you know what? We have this promise of heaven one day. So that no matter how bad the days are right here in front of me, those days down there are pretty awesome. Do you know that? We have hope. We have hope and we can be filled with joy even today. We can be filled and we can celebrate just like these people did. What, what had been meant for a day of destruction became a day for them to celebrate. When Haman was trying to decide, I love this part of the story, when he's trying to decide what day he was going to carry out his plot against the Jews, he, he used this ancient custom of casting lots. Look back at Esther chapter 9. I think it's in verse 24. For Haman, the son of Hamedathai, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, he plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and he cast the pure, that is the lot, kind of like rolling the dice. He wanted to figure out what day he should destroy them. And so this pure, this lot, is what he used to, to, to pick that day. And then it says later that in verse 26, that then Haman, or I'm sorry, Mordecai chooses to call these days Purim these days of celebration from the word pure. And so Haman, who had meant this day to be a day when they're going to be killed, now Mordecai says, hey, let's call our celebration day Purim. Sort of like as our way of every year we have this holiday, we're going to say, hey, this is for you, Haman. Right? This one's for you, Haman. Because what Haman meant to be evil, God turned it around for their good. And so I love that they named their holiday sort of after Haman's foiled plan. What was going to be their end now became their day of hope. And what was going to be their day of annihilation now became their day of celebration. I love that about God. And God often uses the darkest times in our lives. That's where he shines brightest. That's where he comes through. That's where we know he is closest to us as we look back upon our journey. These, those times become the major turning points in our lives. And if you have followed Christ for any length of time, then you have stories like that. But then we must do what the Jews did. We must build our celebrations. We must establish our own feasts of Purim like they did. We must talk about the times when God came through for us. We must tell our children and our grandchildren about the, the ways that God has uh, played out our lives. There may be difficult days ahead, but we can turn, God can turn our joy into sorrow. We must build those days. The greatest celebrations, the greatest opportunities for celebration come out of the darkest circumstances of our lives. Are you still stuck in those brokenness of your circumstances? Perhaps it is past time for you to remember what God has done in your life. Perhaps it is time for you to celebrate, to set up a, a feast of Purim like these Jews did in this scripture. Tara and I have several dates like the one that the Jews remembered. 
We have several times that were dark, and then we saw God come through, and now we can tell our kids those stories. December the 19th is one of those days. As many of you guys know, we had been open to God bringing a child into our lives that we should adopt. It had been several years that we were on that journey. And last fall, we um, had, a, had a child that uh, we believed was going to be ours, and it fell through in the fall. And then there was another child that was planned that uh, it would, uh, they were going to be born on December the 19th, and that fell through as well about a week before. And I remember on, when that day came, December the 19th, when Tara and I kind of woke up that day, and I had off that day, it was a Thursday, and, and I remember just us both just feeling so discouraged. Because that day that was supposed to be kind of this happy day had sort of turned into this day that represented for us, you know, a, a, a just a, maybe God not coming through. It had represented lost hope. It represented a, a, just a lack of, of strength, a lack of strength to even persevere and kind of keep going. And we were wondering, should we even kind of keep going down this path? And that afternoon on December the 19th, this past December, we got another call about a baby that was going to be born in January and needed a family. And when we got that call, because of the experiences that we had just had, honestly, we weren't very excited. Our emotions were sort of taxed and spent. And we didn't like sort of celebrate like, yeah, like we had the first time or the second time that we thought that that would happen. And you know what happened though? That date when we got that call, that baby that was, that we heard about on that December 19th was our little Emery who we adopted and it's been our daughter now for six months. And so you know what? When December the 19th rolls around this year, we have a very different We have a very different feeling as we look forward to that day. That day, which was one of sorrow and mourning, now becomes a day of celebration. A day where we can tell our kids how God came through on our behalf. We can always tell Emery about that day when God brought her into our lives. The greatest opportunity for celebration often comes out of the darkest circumstances of our lives. And so we will go through dark times because that's when we see God closest. That's when we have times to celebrate. And the dark times of our lives allow us then to celebrate all the more because we appreciate what God has done as we've had to wait for him through hard times. You know, as the celebration of the Jews got underway, it got the attention of the nations. Several times here through these texts in Esther, we see that God uh, was bringing more people to be Jewish. They, they, the nations were saying, we want to become Jewish as well. I remember reading that last week. Jim kind of teased that out a little bit. They wanted to become Jewish because they were seeing God come through on their behalf. And as they would celebrate this year after year, this Feast of Purim, it got the attention of those who were around them. And today we want to make this day as a day of celebration to God. We want this day to be a day where we talk about the things that God has done in our lives. And we want to get the attention of those who are around us. And so let's make this a day of celebration for Elkhart County. I'd like you to get out your phones if you don't mind. Seriously. And and I want you to to think. We're going to give you you some time. We're going to give you time to, to think about what you want to praise God for. And our worship teams are going to come up on stage and, and they're going to lead you in a couple of songs. And after the songs are over, we're not done. So don't leave during the music. But after the songs, or during the songs, I want you to spend time thinking. Take, take some time. What has God done in your life, maybe the last month, the last six months, the last year, that you want to give praise to him for today and you want to let people know about it? 
And then I want you to maybe to text it to a friend or several friends or just post it right to your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter, whatever. Get it out there so that we can tell people about our great God. We want to make this a day of celebration where we talk about the things that God is doing and has done in our lives. This can be a day where we talk to our kids about what God has done in our lives. This will become a day of celebration, a day where God gets glory. And so no, don't, don't mention our church. Don't mention this message. Don't, no, nothing like that. This is all about God getting the credit for what he has done in our lives. And so take some time, even as they start to sing, you don't need to sing along right away, and then you just jump in when, you, when you're ready. But just let's give God some praise right now. Let's let today start right now. We can let it go all night long. Let's let today be a day where God gets the praise, the glory. Let's this be our feast of Purim.